the last year or so, I've kind of toned it down a little bit. But I used to pretty much go to every one of them. Yeah. Not not necessarily every one, but a lot of them. And uh, uh, I, I, you have to, from my perspective, you had to at least see the flavor of the show. And, and uh, you want to be there when it's over to see how the audience looks at the, you know, right. how they how they leave the place. Whether right. they're leaving with a smile on their face or, or, or with exuberance, uh, those kind of things. And uh, so that that's something that I've pretty much always done. And I enjoy it. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with David Lykin, president of Double T Concerts, Oregon's oldest and largest concert company. David is also the owner of the Roseland Theater, and he founded Fastix. It was very much an accidental entry into concert business. I uh, had been working for my father, he had a company here in Portland that he uh, co-owned, and I got frustrated and quit. And uh, somebody said, "What are you going to do now?" And I said, "I don't know." And I was shooting pool uh, at the Candlelight Room, interestingly enough. And uh, uh, some guy said, "Well, why don't you do a rock show?" And I went, "Well, how do you do that?" And that's what led to the first ones. And uh, uh, didn't get off to a great start, lost some money, mm. uh, probably would have quit the business. Uh, but Oregon State University called me up uh, while I was doing the last show here in Portland and wanted the same artist to do their mom's weekend show because they'd had a cancellation. And I tried to talk them into a different act because I'd just lost quite a bit of money doing uh, B.J. Thomas was oh, the geez, artist. Yeah. And uh, the guy said, no, we want B.J. Thomas. It'll be fine. And in fact, we'll uh, uh, give you half the profits and uh, you won't, if it loses money, you won't have to pay. And I said, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Exactly. And the show ended up, uh, I actually walked backstage and talked to the manager and said, they want your B.J. And uh, I think it was five or six weeks from that time. We made a deal right there on the spot. And uh, the show did almost 7,000 people. So I guess the Erwin Harris was the gentleman's name at Oregon State who was the uh, director of public events and student publications. Mm -hmm. And I learned pretty fast that he knew a lot more about this than I did. And uh, he was a good resource. And he had been one of the earliest college concert promoters in America. He had done Bob Hope and... Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the whole myriad of people at at, at Oregon State. So uh, he was a good, in the end, a really good resource. And Double T is still involved with shows at Austin Stadium, right? To some degree? We haven't been lately. Uh, You know, probably in the late 90s, we made a kind of a cognizant decision to back off the bigger shows. I think the, the industry has gone through in the process of this consolidation, uh, the 
price of the talent has and ticket prices has increased, mm. uh, in my opinion, ridiculously. Uh, and it's due to uh, some forces that are really unfortunate, the merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation being the pr- primary one. We, we don't play in that pond very much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so 1972, you get going, mm-hmm. uh, Double T. Did you come up with that name right away? or was Double it sort of- T stands for top talent, and I was a golfer, a college golfer, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll call it Double T-E-E, and nobody will know what the <laughs> heck I'm talking about. So that's how it happened that we came up with that name. You produced organ jam concerts at Autzim, mm-hmm. uh, lots of Grateful Dead shows. Mm-hmm. Including, as we were talking before the interview, 1994, that was a big one. I had friends come from Wisconsin for this show. Right. Uh, down at Autzen Stadium, so selling 102,000 tickets. Correct. Holy cow. Uh, we co-produced most of those shows and co-promoted them with Bill Graham Presents. You know, I started working with Grateful Dead in 1972, interestingly enough, and I thought it was always interesting that through all the different national level promoters they had, I was always there pretty much. And uh, needless to say, that was uh, a kind of a lucky break in the end. I mean, they were the number one touring act in the world for a long time. And uh, and I, I grew to, uh, more than their music, I really grew to uh, appreciate the phenomenon mm-hmm. because it was a true American grassroots phenomenon. Yeah, culture. I mean, it it was a a tight-knit community for decades. And it really evolved into a lot more in the end. Yeah. You got to tell the story about the Grateful Dead starting out and trying to promote them with kink and well, early oh, early on, uh, we had uh, started at, at, at the Paramount, interestingly enough, in '72, and then in '77, they they I believe it was '77, might have been '78, but they got a uh, another promoter out of the East Coast that we ended up working with called Monarch Entertainment Bureau, and it was run by a person named John Shear, who became very prominent in our industry. They got to the point where they wanted to do the Coliseum, so we. Uh, booked the show and came time to to uh, buy radio time and uh, none of the radio stations including kink would take our money <laughs> because they really I'll, I'll sugarcoat this a little bit <laughs> but okay. they really didn't want anything to do with kink uh, with the Grateful Dead's audience right. or so they said yeah, yeah that was funny that's when uh, the Bullet Sisters yeah uh, and as I tell it. people uh, uh, you know by the last time we were doing the Dead there at Otson. Uh, which is still the largest concert gathering ever in the yeah. state of Oregon. Uh, we were, you know, getting tickets for federal judges, <laughs> so it, it changed a little. Yeah, it came. It definitely came around. <laughs> there were more Mercedes and BMWs and things like that in the parking lot than vans. Right, exactly, <laughs> than Volkswagen vans. Yeah. In my research, I stumbled upon a Billboard magazine article from 1977, and you were quoted in there a number of times. But you were talking about. Um, they were asking you to project a number of promoters to project how many shows you'd be booking at. At that time, you said for 1977, you were hoping for 70 to 100 shows that year. Mm-hmm. And the biggest headache being the skyrocketing cost of sound and lighting equipment. Number one, I'd love to know how many shows just at the Roseland Theater you're booking. And number two, I bet sound and lighting are still 
up there as far as costs. Uh, they, uh, you know, th- that is a never-ending evolution. And what's amazing to me is that, that what we used to do with three semis full of equipment, now it's sometimes, for the bigger shows, 10 and up. And the cost of stagehands has, uh, at a lot of these shows has gone through the roof. But the Roseland, for the last 10 years, has probably averaged over 150 shows a year. Oh, yeah. And we've become one of the top 10 or 12 venues of our size in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how much longer we've got doing it, but uh, it's, it's been a, a really good investment for me. Well, the acoustics are fantastic. We've made a, a you know, a, a serious, that's been a serious part of what we do. Yeah. We've always tried to have uh, a sound uh, culture there that was taking advantage of that. That's why people go to shows. You know, you go to some shows and you just, you, you get blown out and you have to have earplugs and then you can go to other shows. And I think it's less important than it used to be. Uh, I think in today's, the younger people today, I don't think really have ever heard music on, let's say, a Marantz component stereo. They're, they're listening to music on their phone. Right. So they don't really understand the, the, the nuances of, of sound uh, like they used to. And it used to be a big deal. There were certain places where you would do shows and people would complain and not be happy even before they bought the tickets, such right. as Matt Court, uh, the Coliseum in Portland, Salem Armory. There, you know, I mean, shows happened in those places anyway, but uh, there was always that negative uh, influence from yeah from the acoustics. Well, and the sound folks really make a big difference. Uh, I told a story on the air about going to see, it was at the Coliseum, almost positive, going to see Bruce Springsteen. I had my earplugs because the sound there is not the best quality. And whoever the sound folks were on that show, the sound was fantastic. And that makes you appreciate when you go to venues and it's consistently uh, high quality. Right. I'm guessing that was probably Claire Brothers. I'm not 100% certain, but... Uh, if there was one entity in the touring sound and uh, that part of the business that was always at the, at the top of the food chain, it was Claire Brothers. They were out of the uh, Philadelphia area. That and, would make sense then. And they were really good. Yeah. So you have, uh, Double T has uh, the Rosen Theater that you own, and you've mm-hmm. owned it outright since, because you purchased it in 96. So uh, We actually optioned it in 94, I think purchased it in 96, and remodeled it in 98, 99. And, you know, I feel really fortunate that at this point that we did buy it. uh, And uh, because obviously downtown Portland continues to grow and the the property value continues to increase. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as I, I tell people, I said, rock and roll is paid at this point nearly paid anyway for a pretty good piece of property yeah definitely and the great shows there i actually have tickets to the george ezra show coming up uh, yeah well, uh, check out a couple of sh- sold out yeah i know <laughs> i know i was happy to get them uh, yeah. i've seen a lot of great shows some of the uh roseland shows or the predecessor starry night there are historical in my view as you know i mean i I, and Euphoria, which is another place we booked uh, in the mid-70s, is another place where we did a lot of iconic shows. Uh, I always laugh at uh, the Jimmy Buffett thing because we were fortunate to do him in the early days, and uh, we had a very good relationship with him. 
Um, if, if you look at his last ABC Dunhill record, for example, he's posing with his boat on mm-hmm. the cover, and it's named Euphoria. And that was because that was really his breakout moment, in a way, on a national level. Before that, he was pretty much Florida-based, and uh, uh, and he, we, we ended up booking two shows with him, with Kink, I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, after that weekend, I came in the office and uh, my partner at the time said, I, th- I think we, I th- we're sold out. And I said, oh, that can't be. And sure enough, we sold out over the weekend. And things never sold like that back right. in those days. Uh, so we added two more shows. So he had played four, four shows at Euphoria to, uh, out of nowhere, really. And uh, so... The, 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 we did Tina Turner's comeback shows there and later at Starry Night and then uh, What's Love Got to Do With It hit and mm-hmm. that was, was an instant sellout at the Coliseum. So Where was the Euphoria? It was on Southeast 3rd and Oak and it's I think it's an EDM dance club now. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know where that is. Yeah. Uh, you've got, you came in with um, a stack of papers of all the artists that you've promoted and I'm looking and this is an inch thick stack over I think yeah (laughs) (laughs) and there's probably 50 names on each page I mean this is history this is Portland history here yeah it's somewhere between 7,500 and 10,000 shows I mean that's amazing that's amazing how many I'm curious because I was uh, when I was talking to Terry Courier he goes to a lot of live shows because he's got uh, them performing Mm -hmm. in his in his uh, record store, and then he goes out, he says, practically one a day. How many shows do you usually see? I, uh, in the last year or so, I've kind of toned it down a little bit, but I used to pretty much go to every one of them. Yeah. Not, not necessarily every one, but a lot of them. And uh, uh, I, I, you have to, from my perspective, you had to at least see the flavor of the show and, and uh you want to be there when it's over to mm-hmm. see how the audience looks at the, you know, right. how they, how they leave the place, whether right. they're leaving with a smile on their face or, or, or with exuberance, uh, those kind of things. And, uh, so that, that's something that I've pretty much always done and I enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been, uh, something that the, I enjoy the process of doing it and I enjoy the actual event. So yeah. it, 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 uh, it's an easy business to be involved with from that perspective, for me anyway. Your favorites. I mean, I know that's a huge stack. Oh, wow. I uh, know. You know, uh, I, I always tell people this. I learned the business pretty much uh, doing Tower of Power, and uh, uh, we, we would do Northwest tours with them for, I, for probably a 10-year period there. So they were people that I got to know well. Uh, their shows were Im- amazing. Uh, they were great to work with. Uh, Bonnie Raitt's another one. We, I, 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 she was a part of my uh, PSU ballroom uh, uh, deal, which included her, uh, Billy Joel, Commander Cody. Um, I can't remember them all now, but Bonnie and Billy Joel in particular both started at PSU ballroom, and <laughs> and, uh, and and and. I've done shows with Bonnie for, what is that, 40, that's 45 years almost. Yeah. 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 At this point. Amazing and, career. Uh, and uh, Billy, he moved on, but nonetheless, uh, you know, he was one of the greats. 
and uh, we started him out at PSU Ballroom back in the day. How many venues around the state have you booked artists in? I've never really stopped to count them. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we've done the, we did the Armory and the Expo thing in Medford, uh, Autzen Stadium, Mack Court, the Holt Center, uh, <laughs> the couple, the, the, the Cow Barn at the Lane County Fairgrounds, uh, the Speedway in Eugene, uh, Gill Coliseum, our Coliseum, Moda Center. Uh, Main, mainly Paramount. Oregon, though. Yeah, Paramount. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd done a lot of shows in other markets, too. I mean, I, I one of the artists that we were, got involved with in the mid-'70s where we did a lot of markets with him was Frank Zappa, Blue Oyster Cult, uh, Black Sabbath for a minute. Um, when, when Ronnie James Dio was the lead singer, we did quite a few markets with them. Heart. Heart oh yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Didn't Dweezil Zappa do like an anniversary show at the Roseland Theater for a number of years? Does he still he's do that? He's still doing it. In okay. fact, he's coming back and doing it again in December. He's had to change the name a little bit because some of his relatives are suing him, believe oh. it or not. But <laughs> that's the way it goes, I guess. I know, I know. You know. I was looking uh, online also at all the artists that you've had at the Roseland Theater. And you know, a lot of them, actually all of you who mentioned, and then uh, some names that you haven't, but one of the big ones, uh, and it was a story that you told after Prince passed, mm -hmm. is that you know that the last show that Prince did in Portland was at your venue, right? And you painted the hallways purple. We we painted the venue. It needed a paint job anyway, so we decided uh, a few weeks before the show just to paint it purple. Have fun. And 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 it still is purple, and I will probably keep it purple. So. Yeah. You know, Prince, the interesting one is, for me was when Prince played the first time in our venue, they came down and, and it finally finalized the deal at about 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon because he was playing, I think, at the Coliseum or the Moda Center, and he wanted to play a late show, so he booked a midnight show, and we, this was back before the Internet was what it is now, and uh, we tried to get the word out. And I finally started having to call GMs at radio stations t to get them to talk about it because the on-air people were just not buying it <laughs> from our, our, the minions at, at my office. Right. I'm sure, right. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. And interestingly enough, it did not sell out. And he played for about three hours from midnight till three in the morning and did every hit. He literally was winding through the place oh. with people following him around like the Pied Piper. That must have been an amazing And it was show. really something. Wow. Yeah, it was, that one I get chills talking about I it bet. because it was just so good. Well, he was and, a performer. Yeah. And, he captured. Uh, you know, it's just uh, it's all too common in our business, unfortunately, that people have uh, run afoul of, yeah. of the uh, drugs. Yeah. Simple as it, that. It is a tragedy. You know? Some of your other favorites or other stories you can share with us from artists who've come through, not just the Roseland's mm -hmm. doors, but passing through your Well, company. I think, you know, there, there's a, there's a uh, you know, we've been lucky to do uh, just a lot of great artists. In fact, I was, I was going down a list of the, just the kink type artists that we did. One of my favorite ones was Harry Chapin. Uh, we were lucky to be involved with Harry uh, early on, uh, and we probably did three tours of the Northwest with him. 
got to be friends with him and his brothers who were in his group. And then, unfortunately, it all ended when he was killed in the re- a car wreck. Uh, and it still hurts to this day, you mm-hmm. know, um, because we had a very, I felt, very special relationship with him. And his shows were just so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it uh, he, he just, him and his audience were just so together. Um, but, you know, we've done, back in the day, we did uh, Jimmy Buffett, Harry Chapin, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Grateful Dead. Van Morrison, Jerry Jeff Walker, Jackson Brown, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, Lyle Lovett, Katie Lang, Commander Cody, who was another one of the artists that I learned learned the business with, I guess you'd say, uh, Little River Band, which was one of the coolest ones for me, is that we put Little River Band on at the last minute on the Jimmy Buffett, David Bromberg shows, and uh, we, I think we paid them $500, and they came in... It, from Australia with these green road cases, which certain people still talk about to this day. <laughs> and at one point in their development, we, we did the first date on their American tour at the Coliseum. It sold out. And then nine months later, their last date before they went home to Australia, they played the Coliseum again and sold out. Oh, and the, the Northwest was their probably their biggest market in the country. And I always felt uh, and I just really liked their 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 music and their performances and all that. So we we felt lucky to do that. And uh, uh, then in, in the other phase that Kink went through with the Grover Washington Juniors and the George Bensons and uh, Miles Davis kind of stuff, mm-hmm. we did we did all those. Um, you know, so uh, we've had a, a a long run, you might say. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with David Lichen in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with David Lichen, president of Double T Concerts, Oregon's oldest and largest concert company. David is also the owner of the Roseland Theater, and he founded Fastix. You mentioned uh, Blue Oyster Cult doing particularly mm-hmm. well in the Northwest. What, what other artists are there that you've noticed do particularly well here, maybe not so much other parts of the country? Well, for sure, Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, this is one of her strongest areas, uh, at one point, this was Jimmy Buffett's, probably one of his strongest areas as well, but then he just got big everywhere. It, it, it's interesting, even the difference between, in some cases, Portland and Seattle mm-hmm. uh, with with artists, where you'd do uh, someone that would sell out in Portland and not in Seattle or sell out in Seattle and not in Portland, and you'd kind of you know, wonder what the... And some of it was radio driven. Yeah. And the, you know, our marketing and everything else with with music has really changed because it really used to be driven by the record companies and radio, and now it's very much more niched up, which mm-hmm. is good for a place like the Roseland um, because it's given us a lot more inventory. Right. Although I think the quality of the shows has suffered. Really? How so? I don't think the group, the, the artists or the bands are quite as good when they first go out as they used to be. Not as perhaps performance ready. That's correct. Mm. And you see it 
all the time. Interesting. Uh, you know, uh, the kids don't seem to mind, <laughs> but right. you know, I remember things like when Journey first came out. You know, they they ended up changing lead singers and finding the formula, right. but they were still great before that. And uh, uh, so you, you know, you see, you you saw that most of those artists were already polished when they came through, and they didn't. There weren't that many club shows. Right. Most of the shows started at the Paramount level or the Schnitz, what's now the Schnitzer level. So you had to really fight for these venues yeah. and make sure that you were performance ready. Yeah, you but, bet. And yeah. you had you had you know you had to prove yourself to get a record deal. Right. And and uh, and so on. So it it now I mean you just see artists blow up with you know thirty million views overnight, and you go, what is that about? And it's some a lot of times it's it's a gimmick. Right. I mean. Would you go see? Would you pay a lot of money to go see Gangnam Style? I don't. I wouldn't. But you know, no. uh, the kids <laughs> once will do it. Right. You know. Right. But the good thing about it, and the savior of it, is you see some of these artists that really weren't ready, uh, that stick with it and evolve, and they come back two, three, four years later, and maybe their third time through, and hey, guess what? Yeah. They're 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 doing the, doing it the way they're supposed to. They're starting to get it. Yeah. Those are just a few of the ways that your part of the business has changed. What other ways? I mean, you've been at this for 40 years. Mm -hmm. There's had to have been huge changes from the early 70s to now. Well, you know, I, th I think a lot of the, the some of it's onerous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, what I've seen with the consolidation and, and all of that, I think, is unfortunate. And uh, now... That the, when the Justice Department allowed the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, uh, I think that the future of competition is almost uh, until somebody files that lawsuit in the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're stuck with um, higher ticket prices, uh, scalping your own tickets, um, <laughs> uh, AEGs deal with StubHub. All these kind of things have become where the money is. Right. And when Live Nation, for example, at the arena level uh, has a 10 to $15 per ticket advantage over everybody else mm -hmm. because their service charges are that much, mm -hmm. at least, I think it calls into question uh, how we got here. Right. And uh, I, for me, I'm, I'm 70 years old at this point. Uh, I'm not going to be the one to file the lawsuit in the sky. I've been very successful, and I don't need to uh, go down that road. But I think if I was 40 or 50 again, I would certainly consider it because I, I really believe it was a giant mistake. Yeah. Well, and right now we're we're at a place in the economy where we're okay, but, you know, these things go up and down, and the economy yeah. goes bad again, people can't afford those prices. That's that, and, and they happened uh, very artificially mm -hmm. uh, back starting in the, in the mid to late 90s. I go back to a show that I, when I saw it coming was when we did Dave Matthews Band at the uh, Moda Center in the, in, I think it was 96 or 97, I can't remember. And um, at first the show was a, a guarantee deal and then it switched. And then it switched back to a guarantee deal. Uh, but I was not involved in the actual deal at that point because Dave Matthews' management company had sold to Clear Channel, and it was kind of a back-end situation. And 
I watched uh, what was supposed to be a, a, a fee turn into a guarantee for my co-promoter, uh, and I, I watched them lose $220,000 on Dave Matthews in one day on a guarantee that was double what he had received before. Wow. And that's when I really made a pretty much cognizant decision that the only arena shows I was going to do anymore were ones that fell in my lap. Right. And uh, because it just became, uh, the last time I did Sting, for example, we paid him uh, $375,000 guarantee. And uh, we made money on the last four days of ticket sales, which was good. I mean, it was a decent payday. However, the next time around, he asked for $750,000. This was after the consolidation. And the ticket price went through the roof. Right. And we opted not to bother doing that. And the same thing happened with Tim McGraw, uh, uh, quite a few artists that we had promoted. And mm-hmm. I just decided that, you know, I didn't want to really lose my house. No, <laughs> no not at all. It's and not I, worth it. <laughs> and I watched a lot of shows lose money in Portland because we're not in the top 10 markets. And so more shows are questionable here. And shows used to be priced on a city-by-city basis pretty much. When Live Nation came into being or Clear Channel and other national promoters, all the tours started being uh, priced by one lump sum. And if you divided it by X number of dollars, Portland was tough. What can be reasonable in a San Francisco, New York, Chicago market, even Minneapolis market, maybe not so much in the Portland market. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, Any positive changes you've seen in the last 40 years? Uh, Like I said, for us, you know, I think the positive change has just been the the number of new artists that can sell a thousand tickets. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be even, you know, going up from here. And I think it's really been helped, obviously, by the fact that after 2008, we finally got through really hard times, and uh, and uh, at least for now, we're doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the two things, those two things combined, have really helped the overall business. Yeah, I want to ask you if you've got any more good stories about artists coming through the Roseland in particular. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, th- I think I've got a lot of stories. I don't know how many of them relate to the Roseland in particular. I'll take but, any stories uh, you've got. Uh, let me think here for a minute of something I can maybe tell. One one story that I think is pretty good, and it's not, not really anything too extreme, but it, it, it kind of hit home this week when Huey Lewis said that he had hearing problems right. and has to cancel all these shows. Uh, back in the day, uh, again, this was a Euphoria show. Uh, Huey Lewis used to hold the record, or I think he still does, for fewest tickets we ever sold at a show, (laughs) which was 12 at Euphoria, and the record company bought 40, so we sold 52 tickets. (laughs) Um, And the last time we did Huey Lewis, uh, back when he was touring regularly, we did two nights at the Coliseum and sold both of them out, 22,000 people. So... You know, sometimes uh, the, the what what begins is not necessarily what ends, right. and, uh, and there's so many funny stories. I mean, I go back to 
that very first time we had Grateful Dead in Portland at the Paramount, uh, a certain member of the Grateful Dead had our, our security guy uh, guard his uh, footlocker <laughs> and, uh, and his, his dressing room. And when he came back, he had a big bag of weed mm-hmm. and, and paid the guy with a, letting him <laughs> grab a big handful of, of, of marijuana. So there, there's a lot of things that, that uh, you know, we've seen that we can or can't talk about, right, you know, right. but, and I probably can't name names. And what's fun for me is I've, you know, I, I, I did a lot of business with Bonnie Raitt over the years. And back in the day, uh, her bands partied. And of course, she's been clean and sober now for years. Yeah. So, so we all evolve, I guess, yeah. is the best way to put it. You know, uh, uh, when people do things when they're young that they don't do when, when they get a little older, right. I, I suppose. Um, you, you, what you really see, too, is uh, the artist, like, I'll give a good example. One, one year we were doing Kenny G after he got huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did 18,000 people in Tacoma and 16,000 here in Portland, I think it was. And who would have thought, you know, because right. we knew Kenny when he was a kid. And he, uh, he used to come to Portland and sit in uh, for Monday Night Jazz with uh, Pleasures guys. And uh, Dennis Springer, Pleasure sax player, played with both Pleasure and Jeff Lorber. So when Jeff Lorber was on the road and we were home, Dennis was his sax player. Nice. So we, that's how we recruited Kenny, and he ended up then becoming Jeff Lorber's <laughs> sax player, which is how that evolved. Uh, but I, what, we, what, what you see is he had Tony Braxton as his support act on that tour. And, you know, Kenny would do a meet and greet before the show, and, uh, you know, literally talk to every one of those people and spend an hour doing it. Yeah. Tony Braxton wouldn't come out of her dressing room. It, it's just those kind of things that you see make a difference, you know. Well, and even the shows that Kink has done at the Rosen Theater, there was one uh, holiday show we did. Sean Mullins was there. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those really approachable guys. I mean, we were backstage and he was at the back door smoking a cigarette and just chatting with us and just a really friendly uh, and warm person. And then, you know, some artists are just, you know, very closed off. And granted, some of it is they're in the zone before they go and do their performance. Mm-hmm. But it's a neat way to sit there and, yeah. and talk to some folks. And I mean, you know, we've been really lucky. I mean, we, we I, I, you know, you talk about who are your favorites. I mean, I would say Whitney Houston, without doubt, is, I mean, she was incredible. Yeah. Uh, one of a kind. I think the greatest pop voice that ever lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we started with her at the, at the Schnitzer, you know, that level. But I, I still remember doing uh, three nights with Bonnie Raitt at the old uh, Starry Night. And, uh, and it was at the point where she had no record deal. And uh, I think she actually appreciated the gigs yeah, <laughs> because I think she needed the money at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? and, uh, uh, and, and they all sold out. And, and, uh, and, you know, for an artist to come in to, to Portland, Oregon and sell three shows there with, with no record, you right. know, and no record deal, uh, that, that was kind of a, a, a huge moment, I think, for us. And, uh, Another favorite artist of mine was uh, Joan Armitrading. 
Mm. I mean, she did, her shows were, she kind of reminded me of a, in a way of a female Harry Chapin. Her shows were just so uh, perfect, yeah. you know. At one point, we put a Robert Cray on her show, and then she took him on the rest of the tour. Nice. You know? In fact, a good funny story is a show that we, in our history, I call Shane's Folly. And Shane Tappendorf, who used to work for me and, and uh, was our production guy and sh- settled the shows and our, our point man, uh, we did a show at the Cuthbert Amphitheater that was one of the early shows there with uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Bonnie Raitt, and Robert Cray. And uh, we basically were in, assured of all these things that would be in place for the show. And, of course, we got there, and several of them were not in place. In fact, the stage was substandard. Mm. Their power was uh, sketchy, <laughs> I guess. And I, the, I, I go back to the to the Claire Brothers thing. If we had, if Claire Brothers had showed up there with a bad attitude, that show would have never played. Right. But they made it happen. They just, you know, I, I think they went and got a generator and just, you know, everybody was just scurrying all day long to try to make mm-hmm. that show happen. And I always laugh because they had, uh, uh, I had a new pair of shoes on and we had a, they still do, they have a yurt there for the backstage area. Mm-hmm. And they had the, they had put in rock, and it's right next to the slough there. And anyway, it was kind of sinking by the time <laughs> the show. And my I, my shoes by the end of the day were completely ruined. <laughs> 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 and Bonnie Raid, I think her comment was a nice swamp you've got here. <laughs> you know? But the show sold out, and uh, oh, it must have been and, an amazing show. And it was an amazing show, and she oh. actually blew Stevie Ray Vaughan away that wow. night, which was pretty cool. Not easy to do. Yeah, no. You alluded to this a little, uh, quite early in the conversation. You're um, 71, mm-hmm. and uh, you, I think, from what I gathered, are looking towards retirement. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to keep all my options open at this point. I'm, I, I think we're, we're you know, we're in, a, we're in a good position to maybe keep it going, possibly, mm-hmm. depending on how things play out. Right. Uh, I've actually been looking at expansion in one situation. Mm. Maybe, maybe not. I, w- I wouldn't say that we are looking for an exit strategy. I think we already have it. You mm-hmm. know? So from that perspective, I, I, uh, I've, I've been lucky and been able to make a good living, especially the last 10 or 12 years. So from that perspective, maybe, maybe not. You know, I, I think that I've got a good group of young people around me at this point. Uh, they, they're passionate about what we do, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's what it, what it really takes is, yeah. is people who are passionate about music and the music business. And uh, I've been lucky enough uh, along the way. I've, I've worked, you know, uh, Tom Keenan just retired from Portland Bottling the other mm-hmm. day. He was the founder of Everybody's Records back in the mm-hmm. day and was my partner in Fast Ticks, right. which we sold in the late 90s. I, I guess when you're an entrepreneur, you, uh, you, know, you appreciate those things that, that, that you were able to do along the way. Portland was the on, only market in America where Ticketmaster 
and Fastix's ticketing machines were side by side in the public facilities. I that. Y- you know, and, and and people have no idea the the amount of uh, the the battle that yeah. took place for us to do that. And to this day, uh, there's a lot of competition in the in in, in this market, uh, and I think a lot of that's because of us now. Is Ticketmaster still dominant? Yes, but uh, at least there is uh, there are some alternatives. Well, from my perspective personally, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I can speak for the radio station. We hope Monk, no, we hope Double T <laughs> and Rosalind Deer yeah. stick around for a while. Well, I think, and you know, w- w- we probably will. It's hard to say, uh, but you know, you almost mentioned Monkey. Yeah. But I think we are one of the reasons why they've they've been able to make it Absolutely. this long as well. And Mike Thrasher, and because we've kept those doors open. Yeah, and I think Portland supports that sort of culture of these businesses and uh, people who have built from the ground up and have a passion for what they're doing. Yeah, uh, which certainly covers all of you folks. A lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I always tell people they they. A lot of people think that our business is, uh, you know, you can make a quick buck. And, uh, you know, I, I look back on it and, you know, I, I come to work in, uh, every day for 46 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, there's never been a quick buck. No, there's so <laughs> much that goes on behind the scenes yeah. before and after a show that, Nobody and, sees. and you don't make money on every show. No, either. you don't. You can you can lose a lot of money. No, and you don't. So, th- and, and you know you look for people that uh, appreciate uh, the job you do. Mm-hmm. And we've been lucky along the way. It's a little different now. I think I think everybody's running for the money a lot more than they used to. I think not to not that they. I suppose if they didn't make money with you, they would have left anyway. But. Right. Uh, we we were always, you know, I tell people two of my biggest thrills in the business were uh, I, when I wrote Grateful Dead a check for just under $2 million at Autzen Stadium. And the other one was when I rounded up a check to Bonnie Raitt uh, at Tacoma Dome for $200,000. I mean, those are, those are the things that, you know, you feel uh, that, you know, you've done a really good job for for the for your artist and uh, and and they appreciate that. Looking back on it, you know, we we were we still are. The, I don't know. I, one of these days, I know it's going to change, but we're still the only people that ever ever brought Van Morrison to Oregon. Uh, you know, I don't know if he'll ever come back, mm-hmm. but at some point, it probably won't be us. But uh, nonetheless, and uh, uh, you know, we. We did BB King forever, you know, just things that you just appreciate and and uh, look back on and uh, and kind of celebrate. Absolutely, you know. and know that it took a lot of hard work, but yeah. these are the artists that are amazing, that are truly talented. Yeah, it uh, you know I feel I feel uh, you know I was always a sports guy growing up, uh, and uh, even though when I graduated from college I had a huge record collection, uh, I didn't know how much I really in, enjoyed the, uh, the music. And then I, w- what really happened was the, the process of the whole thing mm-hmm. became something I really liked to do and the promotion and the marketing. And 
you know, and we've always listened, uh, less so now, but in, back in the day, we always paid attention and listened to the music that we promoted yeah. and did it because we either liked it or thought it had merit. Right, right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming and joining me for this series. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with David Lichen. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.